As a pastor who also got an English degree, I've done a lot of writing in my lifetime. And I can attest that typically the most difficult aspect of any writing project is the introduction. You might have a lot to say, uh, but it's sometimes it's just hard to know how to begin to say it. There can be a challenge. And I've been thinking, you know, with all of this buildup that we've been getting from John the Baptist about preparing us for this coming Messiah, preparing us for this amazing moment when the Son of God begins his earthly ministry, how is he going to introduce us to Jesus when it's finally time? How is John going to introduce what there's been so much buildup for? What's he going to say? Well, we're going to find that out today. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 1? beginning in verse 29, and we will read through verse 34. We will continue in our sermon series through John this week. John chapter 1 and verse 29. I would invite you when you're there to please stand for the reading of God's Word. John 1, 29 through 34, Thus saith the Lord, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. John's introduction to Jesus, I think we can all agree, is pretty glorious. Uh, Now, this is obviously not the very first time John has ever seen his cousin Jesus, because we find out from this text that he has already baptized Jesus. So this is not his first interaction with Jesus, but it's still so early on in the ministry of Jesus that John is still in the mode of preparing people for the Son. And whoever John, whatever crowd John is preaching to, they have not yet seen Jesus. They have not met Jesus. Or maybe they have, and they just didn't know who he was. And so as John is preaching to this crowd and trying to prepare them for the Son of God, he sees a familiar face approach. He sees his cousin. But John knows that Jesus is more than just his cousin. John knows that this is the very Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And now, how does John know that? Because John says, obviously, he was pretty estranged from his cousin. They didn't grow up together, and he spent most of his time, adult life, being prepared in the wilderness. So he barely knows his cousin Jesus. So how on earth does John know that this man is the Messiah? Well, he tells us. While he was being prepared in the wilderness, God told him that one of the people you baptize, the Spirit will descend and fall upon that person. And John attests that when I baptized my cousin Jesus, the Spirit fell upon him and a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So John the Baptist received personal vindication and confirmation from both the Father and the Spirit that this Jesus was in fact the Christ the Son of God. And most of John's text here, most of our sermon text, is really about that title. He is trying to convince and show these people who Jesus is. He is, in fact, God's Son. 
However, we've already covered that title. We've already talked about what it means to be the Son of God at the end of the prologue. Right, John the Apostle, at the end of the prologue, describes Jesus as the only begotten Son, who is the only one who has seen the Father, who has known the Father. And so what I want us to do today is not focus so much on the title, the Son of God, but to focus on the first title that John the Baptist gives Jesus. The very first thing he says when he sees Jesus approach this particular crowd, uh, he gives Jesus another title. Right? We've seen a lot of titles already. Jesus is the Word of God. The Son of God, the Christ. But he gives us a new title, and I want us to spend our time this morning on this glorious introduction. Look with me again at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. This is a title that I think focuses a little bit more on what Jesus does rather than who he is. Son of God is just who Jesus is. But the Lamb of God focuses on what he does, which is why John qualifies it. What does the Lamb of God do? Why is he called the Lamb of God? Because he he takes away the sin of the world. Now, I would argue that John the Baptist probably didn't have a full and complete understanding of the very words he himself was saying. I don't know for sure what was going on in John's mind when he called Jesus the Lamb of God. But we have a benefit that John the Baptist didn't have, which is that we live after Pentecost with a completed canon. So we are able to look back upon these words with the rest of Scripture and the Spirit as our guide, and we can see a more completed picture of what on earth it means to be the Lamb of God. Why do we call Jesus a Lamb? What does this mean? And what it is definitely addressing, the title Lamb of God is definitely addressing a theological word known as the atonement or atonement theories. When we in, in theology talk about atonement, we are talking about the simple process of how God redeems sinners. Atonement is how wrongs are made right. Atonement is how sinners are made righteous. And so John is trying to tell us something that a key, crucial, primary aspect of why the Son of God came to earth was for the sake of atonement. He came to make an atonement. And I think that in just in this verse 29, he actually tells us three very important things that we need to understand about the atonement, the nature of the atonement that Christ brings. And so I want us to spend our time looking at these three things. The first one, the first thing we learn from John is that the, uh, the atonement is vicarious. The atonement is vicarious. Now, one of the things I like to do as a preacher is I like to take words that you don't use a lot of time in your personal life, which if you just read them in a book might seem intimidating and show you that we, we come up with a lot of fancy words in theology that are really actually simple. I think we just want to look smart sometimes. So the word vicarious, don't be intimidated by that word. You are very familiar with it. Vicarious simply means to do something either through another person or on behalf of another person. Right? Sometimes parents are accused of living through their children vicariously. Right? They, they have a lot of regrets in their life that they didn't do, so they, they're pushing their children to do it. They're trying to live through their children. Or you can do things vicariously on behalf of someone else. Which is why a more simple word for vicarious is the word substitute. So when we say that the atonement is vicarious, 
Or when we say it's substitutionary, we're saying the exact same thing. The atonement is on behalf of others. Jesus' atonement means that he is a substitute. He accomplishes something for somebody else. He does something in someone else's place. He is a substitute. He atones vicariously. Now, you might be asking, how does John 1.29 tell us that? Because I don't know about you, but the word vicarious, the word substitute is nowhere in this verse. It's nowhere in the entire passage. But it is. The concept is there because that's exactly why John uses the word lamb. When John calls Jesus a lamb, he is calling Jesus a substitute. He is calling Jesus a vicarious atonement. And the reason we know that is because of the Old Testament. John is using Old Testament imagery to communicate to his people who would have been steeped in Old Testament imagery. And so what John is doing is he's taking something from the Old Testament wherein God foreshadowed the coming of Christ by demanding that the people sacrifice unblemished animals to make an atonement for Israel's sin. So the Israelites were already very familiar with vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement, with my sins are forgiven because they've been placed upon this animal who is being sacrificed and my sins are being judged in the animal and not in me. So the concept of the lamb brings with it the concept of vicarious redemption or substitutionary atonement. Now there might be, there are, there have been people who have objected to this because if you were to actually go into your Old Testament go through Leviticus, go through Deuteronomy, and read about the sacrificial system in the temple, you'll find something interesting. They didn't use lambs. Right? They used bulls. They used goats. Sometimes they would even use rams. But lambs were not used in the sacrificial system of Israel. And so some people think that maybe this was a mistake or John is making something up here. But I think that they're way off base because we're not just limited to the specific temple sacrifices. We are limited to the entire teaching of the Old Testament. And the concept of a lamb being a substitute for sin, while it might not happen in the temple, was very much present in the Old Testament and in the life of the Israelites. One example I could give, we won't turn there now, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but if you're looking for something to read, something to study this week, I would encourage you to read Exodus 12 tonight and this week. Because what Exodus 12 documents is the Passover. What was the Passover? When the Israelites were still enslaved in Egypt, the final curse upon Egypt was that the Holy Spirit was going to sleep through the land, He was going to visit every household and kill every firstborn son. The Holy Spirit, there was going to be no distinguishing. He's just going to kill the firstborn son in every household. But there was one exception. God commanded the Israelites, if they wanted to be saved from this judgment, if they wanted the judgment of God to pass over them, which is where we get the name Passover, that they would have to sacrifice a lamb. And they would have to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And so what do we have in Passover? The judgment of God is passing over the people who have been covered by the blood of the lamb. That's called the gospel. The judgment of God passed over the people who were covered by the blood of the lamb. And this, by the way, isn't just some one-off story that was forgotten by Israelites. John didn't just pull off some, some, some random story. Oh yeah, I forgot the lamb was significant in that. No, God, after this, to commemorate this event, instituted the Passover meal. 
So that every year, the Jews would have to slaughter another lamb and eat it to remember when the lamb, the blood of the lamb, redeemed them from the judgment of God. So, so the, and the Passover meal is one of the Jews' high holidays. So this isn't just like some obscure Old Testament thing. This was the very heartbeat of Judaism. That we have been, the, the judgment of God passed over us because of the blood of the Lamb. This was the very heartbeat of Judaism. And here's what's so amazing about it. Do you know what happened to the Passover? Why, is we, why do we as Christians, why do we not celebrate the Passover? It's a trick question. We do. Every single Sunday. The Passover was the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples that he transformed into the Lord's Supper. Every single Sunday we gather to remember the blood of the Lamb. Every Sunday. It is, by the way, the Apostle Paul who makes this connection. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. When Jesus transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper, the point he was making was that I am now the lamb who is being sacrificed. I am now, my blood, the blood of this lamb, is now why the judgment of God will pass over you. That's what we need to remember in our Passover every week. The judgment of God has been erased from our lives because we've been covered by the blood of the lamb. But there is one other reference in a very important passage to a sacrificial lamb that I, I want us to, to dive into because this passage is going to be important to understanding John as a whole. So you can keep your marker here in John 1. But if you will turn your, in your Bibles to Isaiah 53 for me. And for now, we're going to look just at verse 7. Isaiah, one of the major prophets. Isaiah 53. Look with me at verse 7. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The context of this verse is important. Isaiah 53 is one of the clearest, most glorious prophecies we have in all of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. So this is very much, the context here is very much about Jesus' death on a cross. It's about Jesus' sacrifice. And the prophecy which Jesus fulfilled, by the way, when he was uh, questioned by Pilate and questioned by the Pharisees, he remained silent. Right? He fulfilled this prophecy before his crucifixion. But the prophecy is that when we see Jesus silent before his accusers and then put to death, we are supposed to see a sacrificial lamb being slaughtered. We see from the Old Testament a prophecy that your Redeemer is a lamb. He's a sacrificial lamb. So again, I want to emphasize John's audience was very familiar with this understanding of the purpose of a lamb. A lamb was a sacrifice in our place. A sacrifice that because of its blood, God's judgment would pass over us. And they, they would have made the connection then to the ceremonial system as well. To the scapegoat, when, to the bulls and the rams. That these animals are the reason that our sins are atoned for. God doesn't have to destroy us. He destroys them in our place. 
And if you don't, if you disagree with me, if you think, well, I don't know if they would have jumped from the idea of a sacrificial lamb to substitution. I just want to show you that Isaiah makes that jump. Isaiah makes that leap. So let's look at the verses before verse 7. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then he talks about Jesus being a lamb. Clearly, for Isaiah, the concept of a lamb carries with it the concept of substitution. My sins are in Jesus. My iniquities he bore. The chastisement, the discipline, the judgment of God that I deserve, he took. And because he was disciplined, because he was judged, because he was crucified, I am healed. I am forgiven. This is the language of substitution or vicariousness. Jesus doing something in my place. I deserved that death, but he died it. I deserved that judgment, but he received it. He did it in my place. John is trying to communicate by calling Jesus a lamb, a vicarious atonement. And it's not just Isaiah, and it's not just John, who understands that atonement is accomplished through substitution. This is the consistent teaching throughout the entire New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter, when talking about Jesus' death on a cross, actually borrows language from Isaiah 53. Look at what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is leveraging the imagery and the language of Isaiah 53 to communicate something to you that your sins died in Christ. He bore your sins in his body. That's substitution. That's vicarious redemption. The author of Hebrews also believed, by the way, that Jesus bore our sins. He says in Hebrews 9, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Again, that language of substitution. Our sins are given to Christ. He bears something that he didn't actually do. And certainly, I can't leave the Apostle Paul out. He talks too much about the redemption to leave him out. He says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul is saying that according to the law, sinners deserve to be put to death. You deserve to die, but Christ took that curse upon himself for you. Christ took the curse of the law upon himself. Again, I don't mean to be redundant, but that's substitution. That's vicarious redemption. It is clearly a biblical apostolic teaching. But I want us to stay, I hope you're still in Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 53 is going to help us to understand the next point that John the Baptist gave to us, which is now that we have established that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which means he is our substitute, he atones for us vicariously, what does him being my Lamb do? What does it accomplish? Do you remember what John says? What does it mean to be the Lamb of God? What does he do? 
He takes away the sins of the world. So this leads us to our second point. The atonement is vicarious or substitutionary. The atonement is also expiatory. Again, that's a word we don't use a lot, so it might sound complicated, but it's not. To expiate something simply means to make something go away. To draw it out and remove it is to expiate it. So when we say that the atonement is expiatory, what we mean is that in the atonement, Jesus makes our sins go away. He removes our sins. He takes our sins away. He drives them out from us. He takes away the sins of the world. Now, believe it or not, we actually have to dive even deeper here. What does it mean to take away sin? Does it mean I'm never going to sin again? Does it mean I'm unable to sin? Like, what does it mean to take away sins? Now, we all grant, every Christian grants, that in the final scheme of, of salvation... Uh, sin is going to be taken away from us in every sense imaginable. It will not be a temptation for us. It will not be something we do or perform. And we will not be accountable for its guilt. So the gospel will, by the resurrection, the death of Christ, and the Holy Spirit, we will get to a place where we are never sinning again. Where we're never even tempted to sin again. But that's not the kind of taking sin away that I think John the Baptist is talking about because of its connection to the sacrifice of the Lamb in the Old Testament. What John is focusing in on, when John says that the Lamb takes away sin, he's talking specifically about the Lamb taking away the guilt of sin. The punishment worthy of that sin. When he says that the Lamb takes your sins away, what he's saying is that you no longer have to bear the guilt or the responsibility for those sins. They've been dealt with. They've been paid for. Jesus removes your guilt and your punishment of sin. And, and that's why I wanted to stay in Isaiah 53 because I think Isaiah really emphasizes this well. Look at with me again at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Do you see how Jesus' substitutionary death, it does something for you. It gives you peace with God. God is no longer your enemy. He's your friend. Paul says in Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. Your sins have been removed so you can have peace with God. You have been healed. You have been restored. The death of Christ expiates your sins. He comes back to this in verses 10 through 12. Read those with me. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Some of the key words in that, we don't have time to go over in all its detail. This idea of satisfaction. Because Christ died, God is now satisfied. He's pleased with us. He's satisfied. He's not angry. Christ has made the guilt of our sin go away. God is pleased with us because of what Christ has done. And he even uses that amazing phrase that the many shall be counted righteous. 
When God sees you, even though you still fall short of the glory of God, even though you still sin, what does he see? He sees someone who is righteous. How can that be? Because your sin and its guilt have been taken away from you. You don't have the guilt of your sin. You stand before God righteous, healed, at peace. The blood of the Lamb in our place expiates our sins. We are truly sinless because of the Lamb who took our sins away. Now, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons we don't have time to get into today, many people throughout the world who consider themselves Christians despise and repudiate this doctrine. But I submit to you that they must reckon with the biblical data here. This is a clear teaching throughout the New Testament. One of the more famous examples comes from 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a verse is that? Jesus became sin. That's harsh language. He bore sin so much that Paul says he's sin. He became sin, him who actually didn't know sin, the perfect one, became sin. And what's the consequence of his becoming sin for us? That we might become what? Righteous, holy, the righteousness of God. But this, believe it or not, this is one of the more famous verses from Paul. It's not my favorite verse from Paul. My favorite verse from Paul on this issue comes from Colossians 2. Well, notice what Paul says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now here's how forgiveness comes. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I ask you this question rhetorically. How could Paul be more clear? He, he metaphorically describes your sin, metaphorically, as a debt that God has written. God has given you a ticket. You have a, an extensive rap sheet. You have a certificate of sin that must be paid for. And Jesus snatches it out of your hands and says, I'll pay the debt. What's it going to cost? And the judge says, your life. And he nails it to the cross. And then three days later, he comes out of the grave, but your sins don't come with him. We talk about, you, if you were to go into Jerusalem and find the tomb where Jesus was buried, you'd find it empty. It's not true. That tomb is not empty. It's filled with the sins of the world. They're still in it. And they're going to stay there forever. Jesus nailed your sins to the cross when he bore your sins in his body. He paid for your sins by dying the death that you deserved, that I deserved. Paul is crystal clear on this. But I would submit to you that Paul is not even the clearest author about this. I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but that guy is the clearest author. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read a, a lengthy passage of scripture, but I promise I won't do much commentary because, quite frankly, it speaks for itself. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. This is a good passage for those who think that Jesus did not have to die to satisfy the judgment of God on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 8, begin in verse 11 with me. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes place only at death, since it is not in force as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Or forgive me, he has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. We read that already. Now, again, there's too much in all this for me to cover. But I hope you saw how clearly the author of Hebrews teaches that Christ's sacrifice was not just on our behalf, but it was necessary for our forgiveness. It was the mechanism that brought about the expiation of our sins. If he doesn't shed his blood, you can't be forgiven. You will shed yours for all eternity. And by the way, the author of Hebrews, not only is that a lengthy passage, he continues to hammer this very point. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, the, the teaching of this becomes more and more clear throughout the pages of Scripture that Christ's blood is what sanctifies you. Christ's death is what saves you. Christ died in your place and that is what took your sins away. 
And this is, let me just submit to you, the very heart of the gospel. This is why we can in a moment sing these words that when Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. But there's one final question we have to ask about the atonement. If we agree that it was vicarious, it was in the place of others. And if we agree that it took away their sins, the question I have to ask you is, who are they? Whose sins did the lamb substitute for? Whose sins did the lamb take away? Who gets this amazing blessing? Well, I hope you kept your marker in John 1. Let's go back and read his answer. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, there's your substitute, who takes away the sin, there's expiation. And of who? Of the world. Takes away the sin of the world. I'm calling our third point, the atonement is global. The atonement is substitutionary, vicarious. The atonement is expiatory. The atonement is global. Christ died for the world. However, believe it or not, this actually needs some clarification. Uh, This has become a concept. uh, The very nature of the atonement, as well as who Christ died for, has unfortunately become a uh, point of dispute in Christianity. And I'm not going to solve that dispute today, but I am going to suggest that there is only one way to understand this particular text. And that is we actually cannot think of the way the word world, the way you're prone to think of it, Which is when you hear that Christ died for the world, what you hear is that Christ died for every single human individual who has ever lived or ever will live. And I want to submit to you that you can't actually interpret the word world here in that way. And I think that if you do, you're going to run into a couple problems. The first problem is you'll run into is you'll end up falling right into the arms of a heretical Christian movement known as universalists. Universalist. A universalist is someone who believes that every single person, no matter what, is going to be in heaven. Universalists deny the existence of hell. There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as a person being judged. Every single human being, no matter what, they're all going to heaven. That's why they're called universalists. Universally, everyone will go to heaven. And you want to know what's one of the favorite texts of the universalists? John 1.29. Right? Because whose sins does the Lamb take away? The world's. So if you're part of the world, your sins are gone. They've been taken away. So when you stand before God on judgment day, how can you go to hell? You don't have any sins to be paid for. Every single person is going to be saved by Jesus. So every person is going to go to heaven because every single human individual has had their sins taken away by the blood of the Lamb. But we know from the rest of Scripture that this is not true. We know that from our vantage point, unfortunately, many people will die and their sins have not been taken away. Many people will stand before God with their sins on their own souls and they will have to pay for those sins for all eternity. That is a biblical teaching. So we know that the way the universalists understand the word world is not true here. Now, there are Christians who will come along and try to rescue this. 
they will try to interpret the word world the same way as the universalist, but argue that, well, the implications are not there. These are our non-reformed brothers and sisters in Christ, not a heresy. We just disagree with them on this issue. But they would say, no, no, no. Jesus did die in this text for every single human individual. But it doesn't necessarily mean that their sins are automatically taken away. What the text is trying to communicate is that Jesus is the Savior for them. That he, his blood is offered for them. That his blood is the only blood that can save every individual person. So in that way, he takes away the sins of every single person. And I would just submit to you that we have to reject this reading for the simple reason that it's just not what the text says. The text does not present Jesus as the one who offers to take away the sins of the world. The one who is able and invites you to let him take away the sins of the world. This is not an offer. This is not an invitation. The text speaks of Christ's accomplishment. He is the lamb not because he tries to take away the sins of the world and in billions of people fails, but because he actually does it. The Lamb of God has removed. He has taken away the sins of the world. He didn't try. He didn't offer. He did it. All right, we don't want to interpret the text as if John is insinuating that Christ may have partially failed in the mission that God sent him on. All right, he did not fail. He came and he was the perfect Lamb of God and he did remove the world's sins. He took it away. And so I want to submit to you that we need to understand the world differently than you're probably prone to think of it. And before you think that I'm just, you know, bending the text, I want to tell you just as a side note, a really interesting thing that scholars and theologians and academics love to talk about is all of the many ways that, that John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle uses the word world. If you were to read through the Gospel of John and Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and record every time the word world is used, you would not be able to, it would be impossible for you to interpret the word world in every in the same way in every instance. Everyone agrees, no matter their theological persuasion, they agree that John loves to be flexible with how he uses this word. So I'm not reaching here. It's, it's, it's not a, a crazy thing to suggest that maybe John is using the word world a little bit more nuanced than we're prone to think. So I don't think when John tells us that Jesus takes away the sins of the world, that he's telling us that Jesus takes away the sins of every single human person that's ever lived or ever will live. Rather, I think John is speaking in categories. He's speaking in categories. So you could almost think of this as John saying that the Lamb of God takes away the sins of God's elect, which goes beyond the borders of Israel. What, what John is telling us, because remember, uh, John the, the Baptist is not standing, he's not trying to settle a debate in the first century over Calvinism and Arminianism. Right? The, these are not Calvinists, Arminians, and Lutherans in front of him right now. These are Jews. These are Israelites. And he knows that their perspective is that the Messiah would come to save who? Israel. The Jews. He was going to drive out Rome, destroy their persecutors, destroy those who held them in bondage, and bring the glory back to Israel, save the people, and make Israel the world's superpower again. And John wants to dispel that of them right away. The Messiah did not come to destroy Rome and make Israel great. He came to save not Israel, but the nations. He came to save his elect and they go beyond the borders of Israel. As the book of Revelation attests to us, heaven will be filled with men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. John is trying to say heaven is not going to be filled with a nation, but the nations. Heaven is not going to be filled with 
the Jews, but with the world. Jesus came to take away the sins of his people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So in one sense, the word world here is unlimited. In another sense, it's limited. And the, the, the fancy way that we like to talk about it is to say this, that when John says Jesus takes away the sins of the world, he means all people without distinction, not all people without exception. All people without distinction, not all people without exception. So of the group of people who have their sins taken away, are there exceptions to those? Yes. There's a lot of people who would die without their sins taken away. So there's exceptions. But of all the people who have their sins taken away, are there distinctions? Did he leave out the Africans? Did he leave out the Americans? No, there's no distinction. It's for the world without distinction, but not without exception. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the substitution who expiates the sins of his people from every nation. And so let us conclude with this. I want to give you just a phrase. Rather than trying to remember these three points and all those words, maybe here's something you can remember. What do we learn from our sermon today? That Christ offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross to forgive the sins of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If someone asks you, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Why do you call him the Lamb of God? Well, what that means is that as the Lamb, he offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross to forgive the sins of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is, church, the very heart of the gospel.